0: first production of Waiting for Godot I ever saw ended halfway through when the actor playing Didi was injured in the middle of a scene. I remember some very big acting in that scene, him flailing his arms wildly and then falling to the floor. I didn't know what was going on, and then I heard, guys, guys, I dislocated my shoulder. This was a tiny theater in Los Angeles. There might have been 20 seats and only three people were in the audience. I was there as a voter for the local theater awards. It was actually my first show as a voter and it was my first Godot. Guys, guys, I dislocated my shoulder, the actor says. Gogo, or the actor playing Gogo, was frozen for a moment. I think we locked eyes. Didi says, I'm serious, as if this could have all been a joke. Gogo goes to his side. I hear Didi say, this has happened before. I'm wondering why no stage manager has exited the booth. Gogo looks at the three audience members and says, you should go wait in the lobby. Thankful for permission to leave, we exit the room and enter the hallway that doubles as a lobby. Gogo eventually came out to the hallway to let us know the show would not be continuing on that day and we should all leave as Didi was on his way to the hospital. I don't know what happened to the actor after that. I used to tell this story because it seemed like a batshit crazy thing to have happened. I was always sure to tell the story in as mocking a tone as possible, to paint the actor who hurt himself as such an over-the-top performer he basically deserved to be hurt? I don't feel that way anymore. Over the past few years, I've started to become exhausted by the negativity that erupts on social media. It's not the negativity about the world, I understand that. It's the joy people find in piling on film, TV, and theater, when they don't like it. It's a virus. One person will see something they don't like. Maybe some actor really blew it or, God forbid, be terribly miscast. And then the fun begins for them. I don't know why people find so much joy in dumping on other people who tried to make a thing. I've started to find it upsetting and then last year I find myself telling this story again realizing I have been doing the thing I dislike, and I have been doing it for years. I sort of hate myself for that, and I'm trying my best to no longer crap all over the things I don't like. I mean, I don't know what that actor went through to put on that production of Godot. He didn't try to hurt himself, and nobody sets out to make something people will make fun of or hate or whatever. And this is just not an energy I want to put out into the world. I wish that for others too. To move on, instead of exacerbating the cruelty. It might feel like fun for you, but there are humans on the other end of it. And all they did was try to make a thing. So, I'm sorry actor who played Dee, Dee whoever you are. I hope your shoulder healed up and you had the chance to finish that play. this is the subtext podcast my name is brian james Polak. this month on the subtext i speak with tracy letts author of killer joe bug man from nebraska august osage county and the minutes which is playing now on broadway if you're new to the subtext and podcasts about playwrights is up your alley go hit the subscribe button so you can get new episodes automatically sent to your devices If you are so motivated, please rate and review the podcast, because that helps bring more visibility to the show, and it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. If you're on the socials, you can find us on Facebook, Insta, and the Twitters, at Subtext Podcast. All right, Tracy Letts is a Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning author of August Osage County. He's a Tony Award-winning actor for his turn as George in Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? He is currently starring in the HBO series about the LA Lakers called Winning Time. He's playing coach Jack McKinney, and he's starring in The Minutes on Broadway, which he also wrote. I spoke to Tracy over Zoom in March of 2022. And by the way, I'm very much aware there are a couple moments particularly late in the conversation when the internet connection made itself known. I thought about cutting that section entirely, but I think you can still get the idea of what's being said, you know, despite the technical issues. Like I was saying before, I know that you are, you know, this is part of the deal. You're out talking about your things, selling, selling your stuff, so to speak. I'm curious, uh, what what don't you get to talk about? You know, people probably ask you a lot of the same stuff. Like, what was it like growing up in Oklahoma? How did you become an actor? That kind of thing. What don't you get to talk about that you you uh, you wish you could?
1: That's a good question. What don't I get to talk about? The truth is, I, I don't. I never feel like I have a lot to say. I, I and then I wind up talking for an hour, and I go well, and then inevitably I'll get off this, and I'll, I'll go have dinner with my wife, and I'll say, "What the hell was I bullshitting about for?" an hour. It's like, I don't have anything to say. She knows I don't have anything to say. So, uh, I, I, I often feel like it's not that I don't get to talk about it. It's that I have to talk about things when I don't really have anything to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, find the discussion of, uh, process, especially with actors and especially around award season, a weird thing has happened, I think evolved over time, where uh, probably because they don't have anything better to talk about, actors wind up uh, telling you how they made the thing they made. They wanna tell you all about the work. And uh, I, I think there's, a. I know there's a school of thought that says, don't, don't let people see the work. Don't let them, don't let them know how hard you're working. We don't actually want the audience to sit down in a theater, movie theater or live theater. We don't want them to sit down and see all the work. In fact, you kind of don't want them aware of just how much this experience has been curated for them. Uh, The fact that it's operating them on them in ways that they don't fully understand or appreciate is probably better for uh, receiving the work. So, what don't I get to talk about? I I I I get to talk about too much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know one of the worst questions uh, you can ask a playwright is uh, where do your ideas come from? I've been asked that before. You know, you get that from audiences when you have to you know sit in front of the audience and do a talk back of some kind. Uh, that's not a question I'm gonna ask. As a playwright I know better. Um, but I'm curious if you, if you have ideas that you've come up with over the years that you've never actually written, that you can't shake, like they're still in your head. Maybe they're terrible ideas, and that's why you've never written them. But I'm wondering if you have any that have just gotten stuck in there.
1: Yeah, I have. And sometimes I come back to them. Sometimes I can't shake it, and it's like, oh, well, maybe there's something there, and I need to pursue it a little bit further. Uh, I mean, I, I think most writers have a lot of ideas in the course of a day or whatever, any, any period of time. I think most writers have a lot of ideas. Weeding through the bad ones is part of the job and saying, oh, that's not an idea worthy of pursuit. Or if you do pursue it just a little bit and you realize this isn't, this is not going to bear fruit. Uh which is normally why I do spend a lot of time thinking about the thing I'm going to write before I write it. Normally I want it up in my head, churning around in there for a long, long period of time before I ever actually sit down to do any drafting. Occasionally I'll take a few notes on a thing, but generally I I think, well, if it's, if the idea is good enough, it'll stick without note-taking. If it needs a note, it probably is not that strong an idea anyway. So, yeah, I, I guess I have a, a pretty, uh, I think I have a, a, not a huge trove of ideas waiting to be thought more on or developed or, or played with. Uh, but a healthy amount. I got a, mm-hmm. I got a few ideas that are always churning around up there. And some of them m- move, you know. They they're like horses in a horse race. They sort of change their positions over the course of the thing. You know, mm-hmm. some of them will stay out, and suddenly an idea will surprise me and say, "Well, I really need to write about that now because that's really I can't I can't think about the thing I should write because I can't stop thinking about this other thing." So sometimes that takes precedence, but there's no, here's another thing that is revealed when I talk about uh, this stuff, there's no plan. There's no, <laughs> there, there, right. there's, there's no scheme. There's no plan. There's no plot. There's no, I, I, I've, I'm, I've stumbled blindly from one job uh, to another job, from one play to another play from one style of play to another style of play, I've sort of stumbled blindly through all of it. And, uh, uh you know, for a long time, kind of not lucky career wise. And then for a long time now, very lucky, you know? So yeah, it's, but it's all, it all feels like happenstance right now. Anna Shapiro who's directing the minutes, she and I, you know, we've worked together for a long time and we have these assistants in the room. I have, two assistants, uh, I don't need two assistants, but I have over the last few shows here in New York, uh, I, I've met these uh, people who have wanted to assist me on plays and I like them very much and And they've uh, assisted and they're so smart, they're so uh, engaged and engaging, they're so involved with the material. One of them is a director, one of them is a playwright, uh, And then I also have a dramaturg that I've worked with for a long, long time. And then uh, Anna uh, has an assistant of her own, who's a former student of hers. And Anna and I talk about the fact that any of these people could be where we are. I mean, they're they're as smart as we are. Sometimes they're smarter than we are. Sometimes they see more insightful, see things that we don't see. And Ann and I are like, just, we're just like, Jesus, I guess we're just old and lucky. And we're just a combination <laughs> of old and lucky that we are in these seats and and these people are assisting us right now. Yeah.
0: I saw it, uh, an interview you gave a couple of years ago where you were talking about doing research for the minutes and you were watching these city hall meetings or city council meetings on YouTube and you're watching hours and hours of. And that they're just unbelievably boring. True. And uh, uh, I'm curious if at any point during that process were you like, "Oh shit, this is a terrible idea."
1: No, I actually thought I had a good idea. I I actually felt like I had a good idea that I had. I mean, there there's nothing new under the sun, but it it wasn't something I had seen. Uh, I had not seen a play set in a city council meeting. I'm sure there are some, but it it felt like. Uh, Sometimes, when you kind of, as a playwright, especially when you can find that uh, sweet spot of uh, a, a place where you can focus the dramatic action, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I and I felt like I'd not stumbled on it. I, I felt like well, I felt like I had a good idea. Now, the the style of the piece. Uh, Again, it was sort of, sort of new for me. I mean, it's a, a, a bit more uh, satirical than, than what I normally write. Uh, so, I, I mean, as boring as those meetings were, I recognized that that was valuable work. It was the work I needed to put in in order to be able to write. And just to have a little, uh, to be a little grounded in the world I was writing about. And I tried to watch... City council meetings from all over America. I try not to center on any one location. In fact, the the uh, the play is uh, set in uh, Big Cherry, but the state is never named. Now, you could probably, I, I think people could maybe figure out a region that it takes place in. Though we tried to even keep that vague. We there's some talk about the coast versus the wood, but almost in a kind of mythical way. I, I intentionally didn't want to set it in a very specific region, again, unlike my other plays. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that was part of the work of, of writing The Minutes.
0: In watching those videos, did you bump into anything that was, that was like surprising or just totally bananas that you didn't expect to see at a city council meeting?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, obviously those are, those are some of the ones that get the most play on YouTube. The the city council meetings that have gone wrong where somebody has snapped or somebody's threatened somebody else or some little bit of violence has broken out. Uh, uh, but also so much of, the, uh, so much of the play focuses on the banality of those uh, city council meetings. I mean, you know, and I, again, I thought it was worthy of exploration. It, it's like, you know, we, we uh, we feel the way we feel about government, big or small. But the truth is, do the street lights work on your street? Do they do they uh, do they plow the snow when it snows in Madison? I mean, there's a government responsible for making that happen. And so, uh, the banality is part of the gig. It's like you, uh, again, large or small, whether you're talking about the federal level or a small town, it's. Uh, uh, you, you still have to plow the roads so people can do their stuff. And so i found that kind of an interesting element of it as well.
0: Well, I'm sure you've b- bumped into your uh, plenty of banality in your career because a, uh, a movie set and a TV set can be oh, sure. incredibly slow. In that well, process. that's
1: another thing you find that a city council meeting, it, it, I mean, so, some of the things they're dealing with in a city council meeting are foreign to us, but the way people relate in, uh, in workplace, in particular, when they have to work together, you find that uh, some of those things are very universal. There's a there's a moment in the play when a guy is making a presentation, and he puts up uh, puts up an audio visual element, and another guy in the meeting says, "Now, what am I looking at here? I I didn't find that a laugh line when I wrote it. It always gets a big laugh uh, in the audience just because." everybody has sat in some form of the meeting when something that should be obvious to somebody isn't obvious to them. And so it's just that, that moment of recognition. So it's, there are elements of it that are not particular to city council meetings at all.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I know that, uh, you know, in, in a lot of, like a lot of these sort of biographical questions, I'm just going to skip over because people already either know or, you know, they can use Google. Uh, But something I'm really curious about when you, you know, you moved to Chicago when you were 20 and you were acting in plays and you were, you know, you were getting involved in the theater there and you, you decided to write that first play. What, what was it about not being a writer that made you want to, you know, move in that direction?
1: Well, I had. Both my parents were English teachers, uh, and there was a real focus on the written word in our house. There were a lot of books, and we, we were a literary family, uh, or maybe just a literate family. Uh, and so I had always written. I wrote as a kid. I wrote stories as a kid. I was a precocious story writer as, as a little kid, and that continued on. And then I became interested in acting when I was maybe a teenager at some point and started, my focus became more about acting. I'd never thought of writing as a profession. Uh, then as I got interested in acting and thought about acting, film, television, theater, etc., I tried my hand at a couple of screenplays, uh, yeah. which is, you know, a lot of people do. And uh, I wrote a couple of bad screenplays, uh, tried to get them made, uh, you know, made part of something in a low budget and then the money fell through. And, you know, so I, I was working a a bit as a writer. Uh, And then I went to Chicago in my early twenties and I started seeing a lot of, uh, I mean, not only participating in a lot of theater, but seeing a lot of storefront theater, the kind of theater we practice in Chicago, as you know. And. uh, I, I had an idea for a play. I had an idea for a, And in the mid eighties, Chicago, certainly, I mean, I guess it still has a kind of reputation as rock and roll theater town in your face theater, all that kind of stuff. So, and I was in my twenties, I was reading a lot of Pulp Fiction and uh, Noir and all that kind of stuff. That was always, I always had a bit of a macabre sensibility. And so I, I read a news story and that, tweaked something. And I thought, I wonder if I can write this kind of Jim Thompson fiction for the stage. And so I wrote a play and I, I wrote it. It was really purpose built in the sense that it was a single set and five young actors, something I was pretty confident I could get produced in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those elements. Now again, this goes back to the question of where do your ideas come from? I mean, I, I, I mean that Killer Joe was a real stew of different uh, literary influences and just where I was in my life, and uh, again, trying to write for a specific brand of Chicago theater, and uh, certainly pri- probably trying to, you know, I mean, it, it, it's deliberately uh, provocative. Uh, and so, you know, to as a young writer, provoking a reaction, provoking an audience response, mm-hmm. you know, trying to galvanize an audience was certainly a big part of my thinking. So So I don't know it, it's a bit of the chicken or the egg. I don't know, I, I didn't necessarily feel like a playwright. I was an actor who had done some writing and I wrote a play. and it was surprisingly successful though, a certain kind of cultish success. I mean, to this day, I don't think killer Joe's ever played a theater with more than a hundred seats in it. It's played a lot over the, over the years since I wrote it, but it's always been, you know, small down and dirty kind of basement theaters and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not true because I, and this is a, this is one, this, this is a different answer to your question because our production moved to the Edinburgh Festival, and then from Edinburgh we went to uh, London, right. the Bush Theatre, which again was a pub theatre, small theatre. But then Michael Codron, who was a had been Pinter's producer and was a West End producer, said, "I want to take this to the West End," and he moved the show to the West End, where it had a short but well, somewhat successful. I mean, Michael told us at the time, he said, I'm not looking to make money off this. I'm hoping to uh, bring a different audience into the West End. I'm trying to, to lure some younger people into the West End. So that's the one time I think Killer Joe played a theater that was larger than 100 seats was that original production. But the way it's another answer to your question is that going to London with that show was the first time I ever thought, oh, I'm, I might be a playwright because they called me one. <laughs> because i went you know in chicago when i wrote a play they're like oh this actor wrote a play but then when i went to london they didn't know me from adam as an mm-hmm. actor so they said oh here's this young playwright and you know the london press was glowing over that show so it's like oh maybe i'm a maybe i'm a playwright that's probably where i started thinking of myself as a writer really
0: you talked about how you you were reading you know pulp fiction at the time were you you're and you were acting in plays. Were you ever reading plays? Like, did you have playwrights at that stage in your career that were your playwrights that you were going to?
1: Do you mean, you mean playwrights that I knew, or play- no, like you playwrights you were reading? Oh, sure. Yeah, I was reading a lot. I mean, I was when I went to Chicago and got involved in the in the theater community in Chicago. I was really pretty. I was steeped in it. I was mm-hmm. I was reading a lot of plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was absorbing. I was absor- not only reading a lot of plays, but seeing a lot of plays when I could. I mean, always off, off-loop off stuff because I couldn't afford anything else. I, I, I couldn't get into Steppenwolf Theater. It was not even possible for me. Were they already
0: but, sort of like mystical at that time you know, when you moved to
1: Chicago? Yeah. When I moved there in 85, uh, 86... Uh, it, it was an interesting time for that company. They had started in what, 74, 75, they had hit it big. Uh, the only thing I knew about Steppenwolf, uh, and I think the first, probably a lot of people in the country knew about Steppenwolf was Malkovich who had, uh, kind of right around the same time that True West that he did, uh, with Sinise, uh, appeared on PBS, I think, uh. He also appeared in crimes of the heart movie with Sally Field was nominated for an Academy award. Uh, these things happened at the same time. And so anything you would read about John would reference, oh, he's a part of this rock and roll theater company from Chicago called Steppenwolf. Well, when I went there in the mid eighties, I was part of a pretty massive influx of actors from around the country really who were showing up in Chicago. Maybe because we were scared of New York. Uh, Maybe because New York didn't seem like the kind of thing we wanted to do. Maybe we were more, a little more interested in theater than film and television. Maybe because uh, a Midwestern sensibility. Maybe something about Chicago just sounded cool, just sounded a little, uh, you know, a little more down and dirty. Uh, all those things, I think, contributed to this huge, mm. huge influx of talent at the time, and a lot of, uh, you know, groups of friends who had met in their individual uh, college theater programs. You know, they they took the story and the mythology of Steppenwolf and said, "We can go to Chicago and we can start our own." You know, it's also Laurie uh, Metcalf always said we were scared. We were, we were too scared to work else. We wanted to work with each other because we were scared of other people working with each other (laughs) was a way to kind of just continue that, that college bubble. Mm -hmm. And so you saw a lot of that in Chicago. Uh, And still do. I mean, that still happens to this day.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, the draw from, I was living in LA and I moved to Chicago because I wasn't, one for film and television and I just wanted to be a poor theater artist. That's all I cared about. And Chicago, that's what the draw was for me. And I still, you know, and you still see, uh, the groups of the young, I just out of college, starting their ensembles in the, uh, in the shadows and the mythology of Steppenwolf.
1: Right. I mean, and it's, it's created a, a great, uh, ecosystem of, of theater and theater talent for a long, long time now, it's sustained for a long, long time and produced a lot of amazing plays, playwrights, actors, actors and theater people in general. I mean, it's an amazing uh, incubator of, of talent. It has been for a long time. It's, it's its own thing. It's not like New York. It's not like Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's not like, and some people will say, well, Philadelphia, well, Minneapolis, well, Seattle. Not, it's not like Chicago, it's different,
0: yeah, it is different. There is this midwestern sensibility that you can find in other cities like Minneapolis, but it's all it's it's essentially you know we're spending all this time describing something that's essentially indescribable, I think like you've got yeah. to like ground yourself in the city of Chicago to really get a sense of what it really is like in that theater ecosystem
1: I have spent so much time over the years, trying to define that, trying to explain it, trying to, you know, when August 1st, uh, when August Osage County first kind of hit in New York, I remember more than one piece that was like, failed actor turned playwright, Tracy Letts. And it's like, well, I'm not really a failed actor. I'm just a Chicago actor. And you, you just haven't heard of me because I've been working in Chicago and that's fine. I, I, I mean, I, I would go, years and years at a time without any film and TV work, which, uh, I mean, as a, as a younger man, it had been an ambition of mine. I went to Los Angeles for a few years, uh, didn't do well. Uh, What, uh, what, what stage in your career did you
0: make that leap?
1: Uh, so this would have been, I'd been in Chicago 11 years. I went out to LA in 97 and I think I had just, I, I was not a member of the Steppenwolf company. I, I had been working in off, loop, off loop theater and I was broke all the time. I'd written Killer Joe and Bug at that point. I had two plays under my belt, which uh, like I say, had done well, but hadn't made me any real money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was tired of being broke all the time. And what happens often with Chicago actors, I got a little older. I got into my early thirties and I thought, uh, how long can I keep this up? I don't know how much longer I can do this. I I need to try to make some scratch or, or make a move, make some kind of advancement beyond this because I wasn't cracking Steppenwolf or the Goodman theater or any of the bigger theaters in town. So I went out to LA also, I, I think at the time in my early thirties, I still sort of thought of myself as a leading man, as opposed to a character actor. And I thought, well, if you, if you have a moment as a leading man, this is it, right? There's a, there is in fact, a shelf life for that. So I went out to LA for four disappointing, uh, frustrating years. I did works. I mean, I worked enough that when I went back to Chicago four years later, people said, why'd you come back? Seemed like you were doing all right out there. I mean, <laughs> Cause they would see me on a Seinfeld episode or uh, you know, I did a couple I did guest spots on a couple of dramas and a couple of sitcoms and a couple of small movies, but the work was really pretty sparse. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't paying me any money and I wasn't creatively satisfied at all. I wasn't uh, artistically fulfilled at all. I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. And so when I went back to Chicago for it. Oh, I also had my, uh, talented Mr. Ripley moment. This, this is a, a the, here's, it came a little late for me. It comes for most actors. It's the moment when you're sitting and you're watching a movie for me, it was the talented Mr. Ripley where you're sitting and you're watching a movie and you go, Oh, that's, I'm not going to be that. That's not my, that, that's, I'm not going to be the talented Mr. Ripley. So whatever, idea i had in my head about being a leading man it's like oh no 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 i'm looking at jude law and matt damon and i'm not going to be a <laughs> leading man. it's not going to happen for me like i say it, it came a little late a little embarrassingly late but you know, we all have it and you know you have those moments throughout your life and you people adapt they say all right so i'm not the mm-hmm. talented mr ripley so i'll write another play or i'll what i did was i went back to chicago i went back to chicago and uh I went to my friend, Amy Morton. She was doing a production of Glengarry at Steppenwolf and I I've never done it in my life. I, she was actually appearing in uh, cuckoo's nest in New York. And I flew to New York, saw cuckoo's nest, got together with her and asked her for a job. I said, I need it. I need you to put me in that play. And fortunately for me, Amy not only liked me, but, Uh, and liked me as an actor, but Glendary was particularly good fit for me. And so I did the play. So when I returned to Chicago, I really, I took the vow of poverty. I was like, okay, I'm never really going to make any money in this business. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm not going to be a leading man. I'm going to be a character actor. I'm not going to work in film and TV. I'm going to work in the theater. Uh, And I'm, I'm good with that, and I really was. It wasn't a a, a lie I was telling myself. I actually was good with it. I actually felt like I'm actually happier doing this work, and therefore this is where I should be and what I should be doing. As soon as I got back, I did a a couple of shows at Steppenwolf, and it was a fortuitous time for me. Uh, This was the late 90s now, and they had had a real talent drain at the theater. A lot of their members had moved on to pursue film and TV. And uh, they were really needing some younger blood in the theater. Uh, And I was a bit at sea and uh, Martha Levy asked me to join the company. I I guess I was maybe 30, 36, I don't know, 36 years old. And so it was a good age for me to join the company and do a lot of roles. I just... They would call me and say, well, well, you've got this play. And i just say, yes. And they said, well, don't you want to read it? No, I don't need to read it. I'm in. I'll just, uh, I'll do it. Uh, this is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, and then that changed my playwriting. It had been a number of years since Bug. I ha- hadn't uh, written a play the whole time I was in Los Angeles. It's not a theater town. I wasn't sort of thinking theater. So, so, in, so I-
0: the, in that four-year period or those years in Los Angeles, were you really just doing like the LA Hollywood hustle and then like all those creative endeavors that you did in Chicago, the theater, the playwriting were just out of your mind.
1: Yeah, they really were. I was trying to get some uh, writing work because of killer Joe and bug. I, you know, I had an agent, I moved up a little bit in the agent world and they were able to set me up with meetings with uh, film and TV people, but they weren't, they weren't good fits. I mean, I remember going, going out to Disney uh, to talk to Disney about rewriting a a baseball comedy they had. They had had this script. They eventually made it. I, uh, I I'll get the title wrong. They did eventually make it. I don't know if it was successful, but it was a baseball comedy and they had me out to Disney. I'd never been out to Disney before. And if you've ever been out there, it's a you know, the, the, these giant uh, stone dwarves holding up the pillars of the <laughs> seven dwarves. They're holding up the pillars and they look right. like something out of Nuremberg. They're a little scary when you walk in there. <laughs> so you go in and you, I sit and I have my meeting with the guy and he says, uh, uh, baseball comedy, blah, blah, blah. My two plays that are out there that they know or that they have access to are Killer Joe and Bug. And I said, have you read my work? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I, I have to tell you, I'm a little confused why, why you're talking to me mm-hmm. about the baseball comedy. I mean, uh, I'll take a crack at the baseball comedy if you want me to. And he got real honest with me. He slid a sheet of paper over to me. I had a list of names on it. And he said, I have, these are the names I have to see. These are the names of the, artists, the the writers I have to see. I have to fill this quota every week and I get to strike you off the list. As we moved, I was like, oh, so I, I'm not even actually really up for this job. Uh, and I wasn't. And I didn't get it. So I didn't get any of that work. I did pursue some of it, but I didn't really get it while I was in L.A. Mm-hmm. So you come back to Chicago
0: and you're like, screw it. This is going to be my life now. The yeah. Theater. Yeah. Yeah had your, had your, you know, you, like you said, you wrote killer Joe and you wrote bug. And now these years have passed and theaters back on your mind. And you're going to write plays again. I mean, had anything changed for you as a writer or your approach or like, I don't know, like how you saw playwriting or that, that part of your career?
1: Yeah. I mean, so, several things had changed. I, I mean, I'd gotten older. Uh, it's a weird thing we do where we ascribe uh, the personality of the piece to the to the author. Mm. And I've, I've learned since then that there was a real period of time where people thought that the guy who wrote Killer Joe must be some kind of madman. Uh, some kind of, you know, just like crazy... Uh, Sort of morally questionable, uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe wild, maybe unethical. I've I've had writers actually tell me. I mean, like journalists tell me, "Oh, I'm surprised to find you." And I'm like, "I'm a writer. I wrote a play." <laughs> I mean, what crazy alcoholic? Uh, I mean. Uh, the the thing you're describing, they aren't people who normally sit down and write a play and develop a play for the theater. So, whatever that wild man persona was about Killer Joe and Buck had been somewhat oversold, uh, and a number of years had gone by. I had gotten I had gotten sober. I had to, you know become a sober man. I've been sober a long time now. I'd gone through some changes in my life and I'd gone through a very impactful death my my partner had died while I was out in Los Angeles and it had really really rocked my world of course and really just shaken my foundations and I you know as a guy suddenly in his early 30s so so sure my my playwriting was was bound to change thank god it changed i mean there's nothing, can you imagine anything more sad than me sitting around trying to like recapture Killer Joe uh, in my thirties or forties or fifties? It would just be kind of sad and silly. Uh, so the first play I wrote, also, you know, as I say, Killer Joe and Bug had been written with, a, with a, economics were part of the thinking in the way I built those plays. I built them so they could be produced in basements and in 40 seat theaters and in storefronts and stuff. But once they added me to the ensemble at Steppenwolf, I could, uh, expand my canvas a little bit. And that's when I wrote man from Nebraska, which was a a play that had, you know, a lot of scenes and sets and, uh, a lot more actors on stage. And suddenly I had a bit more freedom to do that, uh, so that changed my playwriting as well
0: yeah and that play was a, a Pulitzer finalist. did you like what was your reaction to that at that like all of this leading up to writing you, that play and then suddenly getting that kind of recognition like how did you feel about it?
1: I was pretty shocked i I was pretty shocked. Uh, Michael Phillips, who at the time was the uh, theater critic for the Chicago Tribune, I believe he's now the film critic for the Tribune, he's the one who actually called me. And, uh, you know, the way they do it is they announce, they not only announce the winners, but they announce the nominees at the same time. So the call from Michael was basically, congratulations, you lost. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is a great way to do it. So you don't have to sit around and sweat a nomination for a long period of time. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's too bad I lost it. And isn't it amazing? I was even nominated, but yeah, it was beyond, beyond any hope or expectation I had. For one thing, uh, there's just no expectation that a Chicago play, it it was going to have that kind of impact. I mean, those things typically go to plays that are in New York just because this is where the Pulitzer committee lives. These are the plays they go see. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it's very unexpected.
0: You just, you mentioned a minute ago about getting sober in your early thirties. Alcohol is such a huge part of the communal life of theater makers, you know, in, in Chicago for sure let's get a beer let, to talk about something or after a show, were you concerned that your, your creative life, your play, your theater life would be uh, like, I don't know, negatively impacted by sobriety?
1: No, I wasn't. And I, I guess, I guess I wasn't because, well, because I, I didn't, it wouldn't have mattered if you had told me, you will no longer have a career as a playwright if you get sober. I would have said, all right, said, I'll take that trade off. Uh, Cause I had to get sober. I mean, it was, it was, there, was no, there was no compromise there. I, uh, so I would have taken that, I would have taken that trade off in a heartbeat. And as it turns out, I mean, I, I just don't think it's, I just don't actually think it helps I think it's a, a thing that people have convinced themselves can help. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. really think it helps.
0: Was that first, was that early part particularly challenging sure. with regards to like the theater life? Like it always being around, yeah. it always being a thing people going out for?
1: Not really. Not really. I just, uh, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I was as social as I wanted to be. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I was missing out on anything. We uh, were you a I social was, person before that, you know. Were you that
0: guy more, out
1: at the bars a lot? More social when I was drinking, sure. But you know. uh, uh, I don't know. Again, I'm also a playwright, so there's clearly a part of me that likes solitude and you know likes the life of the mind and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a part of me that was also relieved not to be at the bar. It was like, oh wow, look at all this time I suddenly have uh, to read books and uh work on other stuff rather than uh sitting at the bar with friends Mm. Uh, and if i wanted to be with friends i'd go to the bar and you know have a ginger ale and uh you know and that that was fine it was not that was never a bit that was neither here nor there so Everybody knows,
0: you know, it's well known that August Osage County comes from a uh, real event in your life, inspired by a real event in your life when your your grandfather um, took his life. And I'm I'm wondering if that play was the first time when you mined your own lived experience for for your writing.
1: No, I. I think all of the plays have mined my own lived experience. Some of them are just a bit more, uh, I don't know that sometimes the lines are uh, the, the lines of connection are a bit closer and sometimes you, you let, you, you really leave a lot of play in the, in the line and, you know, let, let it float pretty far out there and get far away from you. But there were, I've tried to write plays that didn't uh, borrow so much from my life, and then the, inevitably they do. I was like, "Oh shit!" I didn't. I was gonna try and just do a thing where I could just write a play that wasn't, didn't take so much out of me, and just like, because I imagine like other playwrights doing it in a way that they like write a good story and they put it in an envelope and they send it off and somebody does it. It's like it doesn't. My plays were never like that. They were always taking a huge chunk out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, August was you talk about carrying an idea around. It was an idea I had carried around for a very long time. And it was after Man from Nebraska, after having that first main stage experience at Steppenwolf, I thought I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to try this. I'm ready to take this on. I'm ready to take on this big, big story and all these characters. I had an idea about how to do it. I really took my time with it. I, I wrote it carefully. Uh, carefully is not the right word. I wrote it. Uh, I had a kind of plan for the writing of it where I would write, a, a, I wrote the first act and then I put it in a drawer for a long time before I took it out, rewrote the first act and wrote the second act. And then I put those in a drawer and let them sit there for a long time before I took them out and then rewrote first act, second act and wrote the third act. Uh, I just, I, I, you know, I was 40 years old by the time I, I started on August and I just thought it's time for me to visit this story. I, uh, I, I think I know the people at Steppenwolf to pull it off. Uh, I, I think I have enough, whatever it is, cachet within the company to say, can I, can I tell a three hour, three and a half hour three-act play on your stage, and they would say, yeah, let's go for that. Uh, but, yeah, the, all the plays have taken parts of me, pieces of my life. August is a, obviously a bit closer than some of them.
0: And how do you feel when you first shared that play with, you know, the folks at Steppenwolf or, or- – Even more specifically, your parents, like at what point in the process did you share this this play with them?
1: My dad was a because the play was about the the person who committed suicide was my mother's father. Mm-hmm. so my dad became a kind of valuable resource for me just in terms of some questions I had about that time. Cause I was 10 years old when it happened. And were a lot of it I didn't remember or it made up or, you know, filled in blanks. So I called my dad several times to talk to him about it. And uh, I do remember once saying to him, or he said to me, why are you writing about this? What, what, what's, what's, why would you write about this? And I said, well, dad, you know, the events of grandpa's death, uh, they've, you know, they've haunted me for a long time. And he said, they have. Hadn't occurred to him. And then
0: such a parent.
1: (laughs) And then I, uh, when I showed the play to my mom, you know, she was the first person I let read it because even though she's not represented in the play per se, there's no character that is a stand-in for my mom. Very clearly, the events were based on her family. And, uh, uh, and so I knew it would be painful for her. It was not a, it's not a it, I mean, it was a thing that it had a huge impact in our family and ripples for years and years and years. And so I showed it to my mom and her first comment, and this has been reported frequently, so it's an old story, but it's true. The first thing she said when she read it was, uh, you've been very kind to my mother. Uh,
0: yeah, I heard that. That's That yeah. statement says so much. That one statement.
1: It's really true. And uh, so then I shared it with the people at Steppenwolf. And uh, the first person I showed it to was Anna Shapiro, uh, because she had directed Man from Nebraska. And, you know... Here's the thing I'll tell playwrights. Uh, I, I say to them, you know, the, the hope when you write a play is that people are going to take it and read it and they are going to put you on their shoulders and carry you through the streets and say, he's a genius. Look what he's done. Look at this amazing thing he's created. And the fear is that they're going to say, this isn't any good. This is, in fact, this is garbage. This is derivative garbage. And I don't know why you've, and you should stop doing that. You know, In between the two of them, we're not even related to the two of them is the reality, which is uh, theater people read it and say, let's go to work. Let's have it. Let's have a reading. Let's let's hear it out loud and see what we've got. Let's see what it is. Uh, I mean, when I think of the play that August is now compared to the play I showed them, I mean, they're essentially the same. And yet I would imagine Every line has been worked over and you know reconsidered and things cut and things added and things moved around and things changed. I mean, it's I mean, Jesus Christ. I wrote the first draft of the minutes six years ago. I did rewrites yesterday. We opened <laughs> this goddamn thing in a week. And it's just the way that's the nature of the of the work we do, of uh, this collaborative form. And so that's what happened when I showed them at Steppenwolf. They said, let's go to work on it. Let's see what we got. Did you have a
0: moment at some point in the process where you were like, ah, I think, I think I'm onto to something
1: with this? Well, I probably had a couple of moments where I thought, I think I'm onto to something. Because, uh, but you can also be fooled at Steppenwolf because the actors are so goddamn good that they can you know, really yeah, kind of yeah. elevate lesser material. And so you sit there and go, am I responding to the play or am I responding to that amazing actor up there? the real moment was the first preview when Anna and I were standing at the back of the house and we heard, uh, you know, you're listening for all kinds of things and you're listening through an audience's ears for the first time. But what we heard, what you hope for in your life as a playwright, what we heard was recognition. Uh, I, I don't mean recognition in the sense, like, like, uh, uh, not applause. I meant like people recognizing themselves on stage. And excited by that recognition, you know, sort of thrilled by the recognition. We actually saw audience members talking to each other about the play, audience members who didn't know each other, talking to each other about the play as they were watching the play. And it was like, that was the moment where we, we were really like, oh, we may be onto something here. We may have we may have uh, struck a struck a, mm. a vein here.
0: That must have been a moment that must have been great that feeling that was
1: very thrilling very great I can't lie about that feeling It was a very gratifying moment yeah because then you kind of feel like well now everything we do is is just is fine work is mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. we get to go in and just fiddle with the dials and, and try and make every just try and make those moments more. Uh, try and get out of the way to allow those moments to happen for uh, the audience in the, in the way we're, with a kind of purity and ease and access and efficiency. Uh, yeah, it's a great moment. I hope every playwright gets that moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I hope I do. <laughs> I, I'm from New Hampshire. I was born and raised in New Hampshire and, uh, and I started writing plays in my thirties, I went to grad school in my late thirties. So I'm a, I'm like a late to the game kind of guy. Where'd you go? Uh, USC. So. Is there a
1: uh, good playwriting program at USC?
0: It's a good playwriting program. And the the draw of the playwriting program, uh, at least when I was there, is that you got to spend a significant amount of time at the film school. And the film school at USC is just right. phenomenal. Like the students are all phenomenal, the professors are all phenomenal. Um, but the big draw for me as a as a playwright was Luis Alfaro uh, teaches in the in the theater school for the, the the graduate playwrights, and and I love his work and I love him and I wanted to I wanted to study with him. And I was living in L.A. at the time. Uh, uh-huh. But I think about um, the the question of the thing I've been pondering um, my short writing relatively short writing career so far as is, is like the New Hampshire identity like what is it what do, what does it mean to be from New Hampshire and what are New Hampshire people and I stew on this all the time and it's like a the state is kind of befuddling to me and I explored a lot in my writing uh, and I'm wondering if you if you've had those thoughts with regards to uh, Oklahoma like Like, is there a part of you that, 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 uh, feels inexorably linked to Oklahoma? Do you think about, you know, the state in some way?
1: Yeah. I mean, the simple answer there is, yeah. I, you know, uh, Killer Joe set in Dallas, uh, where I had, where I went for a couple of years right out of high school, uh, to sort of start work. And, uh, It was a certain response to, you know, uh, when I talk about the way Killer Joe and Bug were both sort of uh, purpose-built, there was another part of my thinking too, which was that I was writing about working-class people. Uh, It was important. I I wasn't seeing a lot of plays about working-class people. And uh, I couldn't believe some some of the insulting things people said about the people in Killer Joe and Bug uh, when they wrote about the plays, because, I, I mean, they are, in fact, working class. They, uh, they all have jobs in those plays. They all actually work for a living. And I thought, well, I'm not seeing a lot of plays written about these people. And then maybe because I was struggling economically, I don't know, but certainly by the time, you know, Man from Nebraska is a little different economic bracket, right? He's an insurance salesman. Then we get to August Osage County and they do a variety of things but really it's about academics which is what I knew my parents were school teachers so we have a kind of cliche about Oklahoma well, not a kind of cliche we we definitely have a there's a stereotype of, of what a person from Oklahoma is but the truth is all the people I was around in Oklahoma were educated well-read, talented, smart, funny, engaging, uh, authentic, uh, mercurial. I mean, uh, (laughs) the list goes on and on. They were multifaceted people. And so part of the joy of writing August Osage County for me was about bringing some of those people on the stage and saying, think you know Oklahoma? You don't know these people. These people might be smarter than you. And they're from Oklahoma. And maybe you haven't seen that before. So that was definitely part of the the joy of, of that piece for me. But yeah, I think about Oklahoma. I mean, you know, my next play after that was Superior Donuts because I wanted to write about Chicago. I had been in Chicago for a lo- longer than I had been in Oklahoma. Though, so of course, I was in Oklahoma for some formative years. Uh, but yeah, it definitely, it, it can't help but inform Your work. I mean, it should inform your work. I mean, I don't know that much about New Hampshire. All the better to write a play about people from New Hampshire. And maybe I'll learn something when I go see it about people from New Hampshire because I don't know anything about them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm still figuring it out. I'm figuring, I'm still, that's what my work is. I don't know what you would say to that, but my work is me figuring me out. And the me I'm figuring out is in relation to. The 18 years I spent from birth through high school graduation in that state that I find
1: weird. Well, then you're doing it right. I mean, I think if you're if you're trying to figure yourself out through your work and uh, born and raised in as part of that, I think you're absolutely doing it right. I think that I think that's a great way, uh, it's certainly confusing to me and heartbreaking to me. Uh, you know, I, the state used to be, I mean, Jesus, uh, progressive. I mean, it's the home of uh, Woody Guthrie. It's the home of Will Rogers. You know, it used to have, it had some progressive roots uh, to, to see what's happened to it over the last 40 years. About uh, Missouri, I could say the same thing about some other place. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I, 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 I mean that place like Oklahoma has to go to a four-day school week because they don't believe in paying for government or education. I mean, it's fucking pathetic. Hmm. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started on this topic. I won't. I should yeah, I should have asked
0: this one 45 minutes ago. <laughs> Uh, so is there anything <laughs> is there anything uh, on your mind at the moment or in a drawer at the moment that might become another play in the future
1: well yeah there's a couple of things that are on my mind and they could become plays in the future but i i 'll be very frank with you i 've uh, found working during the pandemic to be uh, well I haven't done it I haven't been able to do it I Mm. uh, now I have a couple of young kids I'm an old dad and I have a a four-year-old and an eight-month-old even though I'm 56 years old Uh, so that's a new kind of challenge at this point in my life and uh, a very welcome one Uh, they're, they're amazing kids and I love my time with them but when the pandemic started I mean we were in previews for the minutes and uh in fact, the night that the critics were coming to see the show was the first show we canceled because of the pandemic. So we were there. We were, we were right there. We were tuned up and ready to go. And we pulled the plug on the show and as we should have, of course. And, uh, we all, we, all of us, everybody went, went to our homes, wherever it was, we, we went for quarantine and, uh, you know, I remember at the time a uh, kind of feeling of uh, well, I I don't have a right to complain. I, 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 I've got plenty of money. I, I don't have to worry about this. My kids aren't old enough to uh, be in school, so I don't have to worry about that. For them, it's a kind of vacation. Uh, people are, you know, fucking dying and getting sick and uh, and uh, like I don't have to deal with any of this shit. And so I thought... I. I've got no right to complain. I still don't have any right to complain, but it probably was about, it was probably about four months into it where I, I turned to Carrie and I said, I'm devastated. Uh, The fact that my show was after all these years of working on a play, and it's a years long process to get right to that point and then have it disappear was actually pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. She and I worked out a, Several times we worked out an opportunity for me to, uh, to work around the kids. You know, you have to do a little planning with, with your family about how you're going to work this out. And so we worked it out. It's like, okay, these hours I'm going into the office. I'm not to be disturbed. I'm going to go in and I'm going to get my work done during this. And each time uh, it would go on for weeks at a time. And I would eventually come out after several weeks with nothing. I mean, having produced nothing just nothing or two pages of unusable garbage. And I would come out and say, uh, I can't keep doing this because it makes me feel so bad about myself. I like the self-loathing that I'm going through in that office every day is just, it's, I can't, because then I wind up bringing it out, you know, to my family. It's not like I just leave it in the office. And so Carrie was great and said, look, you need to stop just stop, just, just, just live, just be with your kids and cook dinner and, you know, take care of yourself and watch movies and read books and, and just, just relax for a little bit, which I did, which, you know, I've tried to do for the longest time in recent months. Now that sort of work has started back for a lot of people, I've taken a couple of uh, adaptation jobs. Uh, They're not the first It's not my first interest, but they pay and gets me working again, gets my mind going. Uh, But in terms of original work, nothing. I got nothing going on. It's been great to be back in rehearsal for The Minutes. You know, we're back and we're about to start previews this week. And uh, it's got my, my theater brain is working again. And we're going to get to reopen the show and I'm hopeful that that will kind of, you know, unstick something and I can can get back to work on more original stuff.
0: Yeah, I hope that for you as well. And I'm really happy that uh, The Minutes was able to return in an environment where that wasn't the case for every other, you know, not every other, but many, many plays that had to to be canceled. So I'm happy for you. Um, Break legs and all that for the beginning of previews and uh and uh, it's
1: also the uh i have to say there's also the blessing of the third production because the third is always the best mm. first always has the the first one which we did at chicago at steppenwolf was exciting because it's new and different it's a new play and our audience is really hunger for new plays. And then to bring it to Broadway, the, sh- the production that we were in previews for was really fine too and I and better. There, second productions are always better. You always find stuff in the second production. But the third production is always the best because that's where you really figure out how that fucker works. Mm. And you can really get uh, under the hood and start taking it apart. And we've really done that with this. And then what I keep saying to my collaborators is, but don't do a fourth. <laughs> I think when you do the fourth, that's when it the wheels come off and you start. Uh, you, I don't know. You, you, the work can get a little masturbatory at that point. But the third is the best, so I'm excited about it. That's great. I hope
0: you find, if you haven't already, that moment of recognition with this play that you talked about
1: earlier. Well, thanks. I'm. Uh, you know, that's that's the it's uh, the holy grail. Is what we.
0: Thank you to Tracy Letts for giving me your time, and a big thanks to the PR team for The Minutes for making this conversation a reality. If you are accessible to New York City, The Minutes is playing on Broadway right now. Go to theminutesbroadway.com for tickets and information. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent in American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thanks, as always, to associate producer K.J. Jarbo. This episode was recorded and edited by yours truly. The music is from one of my oldest friends, Daryl Panza, and the theme song is by International Pen PAL. If you want to get in touch, email the Subtext Podcast at gmail dot com or give us a call and leave a voicemail at five zero five three zero two one two three five. Your message might be used on a future episode. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Sickle, by Abby Fenberg. It's set in 1930s Ukraine and tells the devastating story of the Holodomor, which was a famine intentionally perpetrated by the Russians on the population of Ukraine. Feels sort of relevant today.